Hello and welcome to another expert conversation run by UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab. This is part of our expert series focusing on a post-COVID-19 reset along a more equitable and inclusive path, focusing in particular on uh, social impacts of the pandemic and pandemic-related policies and potential post-pandemic dynamics and the social policy challenges that relate to them. I hope you've enjoyed previous episodes in this podcast series. And today we have a really great um, forehand uh, discussion, as you will see. As always in our podcast series, the conversation will revolve around two main things. On the one hand, the concrete policy measures that our invited experts see as being conducive to equitable recovery. And on the other hand, the data and knowledge that we have, or perhaps don't have but need, to inform such policy shifts. Today, we have two invited experts. Dr. Stacia West is Assistant Professor at the University of Tennessee and Director of the Guaranteed Income Research Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Amy Castro-Baker is Assistant Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Their expertise, among other things, lies in universal basic income, unconditional cash transfers, women's poverty, and wealth inequalities. And they've also worked in particular as um, evaluators on the guaranteed income experiment in Stockton, California, which we'll be devoting quite a lot of our conversation today to. Stacia, Amy, welcome. Thanks for having us. My name is John Crowley. I'm UNESCO's Chief of Research Policy and Foresight, and I'm your host for this podcast. My co-host today is my colleague Yulia Stepchuk, UNESCO's lead on inclusive policies and data use in policy, and the person who actually runs both the Inclusive Policy Lab and this podcast series. So I'd like um, to discuss today what's known as the Stockton Economic Endowment Demonstration, which was a guaranteed income experiment run in California and was the first city-led pilot of its kind in the U.S. And we're interested in many aspects of this Californian experiment, including design, outcomes, financing, and lessons learned. First, on uh, design issues, could you tell us um, briefly about the design of this pilot, the numbers, the criteria, the process, the evaluation, the limitations, so that we can better understand what's at stake in analyzing how it actually went? We designed the pilot as a mixed methods RCT with a participatory action research kind of at its core. The community-based component was baked into the design really from the beginning, so I'll kind of walk you through each step of the design. So first we met with local community groups, including the Stockton Scholars, which is a group of high school students receiving college scholarship, and also the Conway Homes Residence Council, which is a neighborhood organization in Stockton. With them, we considered various sampling schemes and considerations about benefits interacting with the existing social safety net. And so ultimately, we landed on a design that used random address-based sampling for individuals living in, in census tracts at or below the median income of the area. That's around $46,000 in Stockton. So what we did is sent out 4,000 mailers. I like to say 500 people wanted to talk to us. So we had around 478 respondents of those 4,000, which is really on par with what we see with address-based random sampling. Um, it's actually a little bit higher than the average rate. So we then randomized those individuals into a treatment condition, 125 to receive 
the guaranteed income for what ultimately ended up being a two-year period. It's originally planned as an 18-month demonstration, uh, but because that 18-month ended right in the middle of the pandemic, we had a generous philanthropist who allowed the demonstration to be extended for an additional six months. So we have 125 in the treatment condition, an active control condition of 200 people, and the remainder of those 478 into a passive control condition that do not participate in surveys or interviews, but only have consented to have access um, to administrative data. So the data collection itself was mixed methods integration. What we did quantitatively is we fielded surveys every six months, uh, starting prior to random assignment. And this survey included a number of domains that really got at our key research questions. Those included the Kessler 10 and the short form Health Survey 36 to measure mental and physical health, as well as indicators of income volatility, financial stability, family and parenting dynamics, hope and mattering, and basic employment and education data. We fielded those surveys. We also conducted in-depth qualitative interviews with members of both the treatment condition and the control condition. And the purpose of that design was to determine not only if we saw significant changes on those key domains, but also to in interrogate how and why those changes happened. And I think that's one of the biggest strengths of the study. Thank you. Uh, Yulia, I think you want to uh, follow up uh, with some additional questions on that design. Yeah, a brief uh, probing question here. How was the pilot designed to interact with the rest of social security system and the existing safety net? Uh, meaning, uh, did it replace current entitlements or did it come on top of those? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it was one of the most difficult things that we had to, to manage, both in terms of design and then just in terms of informed consent. So the way that the experiment is designed, you know, is, is to work alongside the existing safety net, not to replace it. And that's both, um, you know, a, an issue of research, but it's also an issue of ethics and, and primarily research ethics. So we could not have a scenario where somebody would receive the $500 per month and then lose health insurance or lose a housing voucher, um, lose food stamps, that type of thing. So there was a number of different things that we did, both in the sampling process and then the informed consent process and along with getting some waivers to make sure that nobody was um, losing benefits as a result of being in the treatment group. What outcomes has your evaluation revealed so far, including beneficiary perceptions, impact on beneficiary uh, welfare, well-being, and so on, job prospects? Um, what, what would you like to point us to in terms of outcomes? We really focused on three key outcomes of this first year. It's important to note that these findings are predicated on data that is just from the first year. So we're talking about data collected from 2018 through February of 2020, just prior to when the pandemic began. So what the way that I think about these findings is that they can help us understand how individuals who received the guaranteed income were positioned in terms of health and financial security as they entered the pandemic. So those three outcomes are guaranteed income eased month over month income volatility for the treatment group. So the average month over month income volatility or kind of variation in your paycheck in lower income samples that we've seen before is somewhere between 35 and 50%. In the treatment group, we saw income volatility roughly at around 47%, so a bit higher than some of the priors. However, this is compared to 67% income volatility in the control group. Dr. Baker, do you wanna talk a little bit about what that means in real life? 
Yeah, sure. So, you know, the question becomes sort of why, right? So why do we even look at income volatility? Why does it matter? And the key thing, you know, for us is really thinking about the fact that when your money is going up and down, you, you can't predict your finances. Um, first of all, what that does is it locks you out of a lot of safe financial instruments. But second, it really creates a lot of stress and strain in the home because you you cannot adequately plan for the future. So what you end up seeing are you know negative mental health effects. Um, it, of course, it impacts the way that people engage with work, engage with their kids, because that unpredictability in finances really shows up in relationships, um, in the way that you budget or your lack of ability to do so. So it's one of those, those key indicators. And, and importantly for us, thinking about as social scientists, watching that trend grow over time and seeing how income volatility continues to move up the income ladder means it's something that we need to start paying more attention to is that they're really smoothing that piece there. Thank you for that. The second finding that we had is that guaranteed income had significant impacts on the mental health and physical health for the treatment group over the time that we did not observe in the control group. So we used the Kessler 10, which is a widely used instrument to measure psychological distress, manifesting as symptoms of anxiety or depression. Throughout the experiment, the control group was hovering in the range of a mild mental health disorder, and that's a score of 20 um, or above. For the treatment group, we see a significant decline in reported symptoms of anxiety and depression over the years. So they moved from a score, they being the treatment group, that would indicate a mild mental health disorder to a score that indicates likely mental wellness. Similar findings were present in the analyses of the short form health survey, which really looks at physical functioning. And we see there individuals in the treatment group were, were reporting more energy over fatigue, less emotional distress, and less bodily pain um, than the control group. Dr. Baker, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, you know, you know, as, again, sort of as a social scientist and somebody who was originally trained as a social worker, I look at those shifts in mental health and well-being, and it, it's just extraordinary. I mean, watching something as simple as cash alleviate such significant symptomology is, is extraordinarily and really exciting. But I think when I think, take it a step further and thinking about asking the question, what happens when people are locked into what we would call a scarcity battle, right? And what ends up happening is that, you know, financial scarcity that's generated by income volatility really creates this time scarcity piece to where people are spending all of their energy, all of their cognitive capacity, constantly trying to manage the stress, <clears throat> excuse me, that's associated um, with financial scarcity. And what we really see is that when you can calm down down that volatility, it shows up as healthier, you know, healthier mental health, healthier well-being. And what that really does is it frees up some cognitive capacity for people to really breathe and set goals um, and think about their future in ways that maybe they couldn't have prior. So it's sort of, you know, on the one hand, yes, um, you know, the improvement in mental health is absolutely extraordinary. But it stopping there is 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 kind of selling ourselves short because it really begs the question. If you can alleviate that form of stress, um, what are you then freeing up in terms of time, uh, goal setting, uh, and reimagining really the way that people are able to engage as citizens you know, in their community, in their homes? And that's a little bit of what we were able to see when we were doing the mixed methods integration. So that's a great lead into this third outcome that we looked at in the first year, uh, and that's agency over one's future. How can guaranteed income uh, promote agency over one's future or, or impact it in any way. 
So we looked at this um, really through employment outcomes as well as risk taking and, and goal setting among uh, the sample. So uh, starting at baseline, we see 28% of the treatment group was employed full time. We see a 12 percentage point increase at uh, the end of year one, where 40% of the sample of individuals in the guaranteed income group are, re are reporting full time employment. And by comparison, we only see a five percentage point increase in the control group. So I look at these data and ask, why did this happen, especially when we haven't seen these sort of effects uh, really detected in other guaranteed income experiments? Amy, all you. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> first I just you know, want to make sure that we're making it clear that we're not talking about labor market effects. What we're talking about you know, is very specifically how did individuals in this specific treatment group engage with their local labor market when they had the infusion of cash. And, one of the things that we we really learned through again that mixed methods integration looking at those quantitative signals around employment data and then following it up with some narrative data and, and discourse analysis was that people really articulated that the infusion of cash allowed them to take risks that they couldn't take prior so you know first i mentioned this before is that you know financial scarcity generates time scarcity and that's time scarcity in the home but that's also time scarcity in terms of how you seek employment so one of the things that we saw over and over again in the treatment group with those who moved from being underemployed to fully employed was that they knew they were eligible for certain types of jobs for some period of time and in many cases actually had the requisite training to, to improve their employment, but because they, they quite literally could not take a single shift off of work to take that risk of actually applying for a job that might not pan out, they couldn't do it. So what ended up happening was people were able to use that cash to smooth that income volatility and it created just enough bandwidth in terms of time for them to actually set new goals uh, and think about ways that they could take an internship, for instance, that might lead to better employment. Then the second thing that really that really happened was again that increase in capacity is that that alleviation of stress and strain really allowed people um, to to reimagine um, how they wanted to engage with the labor market and you know more importantly you know just thinking about it in terms of human flourishing or human capability it allowed people to focus on things that they had put aside for a really long time so for instance um, not just things like technical employment training things like that. Um, but investing in themselves um, and investing in, in the arts in some cases or investing in community engagement that they really could not do before. And so we really think about it as, it, yes, it's employment and, and that's key, but also thinking about when, when we, people are locked in this scarcity battle, what happens when you alleviate that? Um, and really, we're really just beginning to ask that question because, again, it's a small experiment and there's a lot we still don't know. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know Yulia wants to come back to the um, employment related issues. Yes, thank you. So all the outcomes uh, the two of you talked about are very, very interesting and important. Um, I want to go deeper into employment uh, just because it's something that many critics of basic income uh, are worried about. Your data shows very strong and positive impact on employment. Uh, why, even as compared to other experiments, and I read somewhere that you, the two of you, were surprised by such results. Why do you think there is something in the very design of the experiment or other factors you would like to flag? So I think two things are, are happening here. And it's funny that, yes, we, we were surprised by these findings. And I think it's because 
even as social workers and researchers, we have internalized this false dichotomy of, you know, is it a welfare replacement or is it a citizenship dividend, right? And, and that's really uh, undergirded by, by how we view ourselves in community and as humans, right? So in one of those themes you think of, you know, community and neighborliness and that we can trust most people. And then the other, you think uh, through a philosophical lens of competition where humans are intrinsically motivated by their own, own desires, right? Um, and that that will somehow take away from your own flourishing. So this, this question of disincentive to work, um, it, I think is bothersome and, and not a, a particularly great question to ask because who in the world would quit working for $500 a month or $1,000 a month, right? What we have seen here is that it provides a floor uh, that many individuals that are born into wealth already have, right? Simply all this does is provides a floor for you know, an individual to stand on, to take more risks, to be part of uh, the formal economy if they want to, but also importantly, allows individuals who uh, really hold up the formal economy in the U.S., that being women, to perform care work. So some of the prior experiments that we saw, we saw women stepping back from the workforce because, because they could, right? They could, they could stay at home and take care of kids um, and, and provide a, a warm home environment for them um, when the demands of the market were such that they had to be forced to choose uh, between work and parenting. And I think that's a positive uh, sort of way to look at this. Um, thank you uh, very much. The, another question I'd, I'd like to ask is um, what gender specific aspects of the experiment uh, you reached conclusions on? Uh, we've done some other podcasts in this series that have pointed to some quite strongly gendered benefits of um, unconditional income schemes. Did you find something similar or would you like to comment on that aspect? I will say quantitatively, we have not um, analyzed that multiple variables, including race, gender, that sort of a thing. Qualitatively, though, we do have some interesting findings around care work. Dr. Baker, would you like to share those? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, two things really. So, so first, you know, we saw that that risk-taking behavior um, that I mentioned prior, meaning that that infusion of cash allowed people to take risks that they wouldn't have otherwise. We saw that present among both men and women, but with women, there was really a limit to, to the level of risk that they could take because the scale of care work that so many of them were performing, unpaid labor in the home, meaning raising kids, um, taking care of elderly family members, taking care of sick family members, that that type of thing, really sort of place constraints um, on sort of the scale of risk that they were able to take. But at the same time, we really saw, um, you know, the money being leveraged to patch holes in the market and holes in the safety net around unpaid care work. So in the U.S. is is not great at supporting the unpaid uh, labor of women. You know, we do not have strong policies at all supporting families um, and particularly supporting women. So what we really saw was that people were able to leverage that money to to sort of um, it served as kind of a form of paid care work to really compensate them for that labor. And again, you know, we saw that show up in terms of alleviation of stress. But we also saw, you know, a really interesting finding where women were able to focus on their own health and well-being in a way that they had put off for many, many years. And so this went really well beyond things like, you know, self-care, things like that. 
um, into things like focusing on their own healthcare, but also really just focusing on their own relationships. So it, you know, thinking about our second year of data and how that really started at, you know, at the start of the pandemic, I'm going to be really interested <laughs> to see what happened um, with those families because as COVID hit in the U.S., we didn't really have policies to protect you know, women who in particular were homeschooling their kids suddenly and, and expected to pick up the slack without funding. So it'll be interesting to see how those findings do or do not hold up and, and how that functioned during the pandemic. It's one of our key research questions over the next year. So you mentioned the pandemic and that's very interesting. That was uh, our next question. Um, your pilot kicked off in a pre-COVID world and it ran through the pandemic. It wasn't designed that way, but it could run a very, very valuable result. And the first question we had is, do you have, even if preliminary data on how the recipients of uh, the basic income, whether the pandemic as compared to the rest, be it in economic terms or health or well-being or other parameters you, you assessed? We do not have preliminary data on the pandemic, so we'll, we'll continue data collection uh, through September of this year um, and then release the findings of the second year, which really took place throughout the pandemic in spring of 2022. But as we talked about earlier, I think what we know from this first year is that at least individuals who were part of the treatment condition seem to be better prepared financially as well as mentally and physically as they entered the pandemic. Will those findings hold in the second year remains to be seen. Yeah, one thing I just want to add to that, you know, is <laughs> I think in sort of the, the the stress and you know constant shock of the pandemic, it, it it becomes this thing that we all consistently focus on as though, at least us in the US, as though it's the only economic crisis on the horizon, right? And I think one of the things that's most important is if we think about this historically as a policy era, particularly in the United States and of course other places around the globe, we are living in an era of risk. So it's a pandemic now, it's gonna be a recession later, it's gonna be climate change a few years from now. And so the asking the question to what degree can cash serve as a financial vaccine is crucial because the pandemic is not a one-off, right? Like we still haven't recovered from the great recession and constant persistent shocks are becoming part of, of the American economy. So thinking about, you know, how again, first, you know, do you smooth that income volatility, but then thinking about not just did people weather the pandemic well, but could this potentially serve as a model to shore up some of the volatility in the market that we know is going to continue well beyond the pandemic? It's interesting that you mentioned and, and you are talking about the US, there was a team that looked into the Kenyan experiment from Give Directly and uh, MIT, I believe, and the experiment uh, like yours ran through the pandemic, even if it uh, wasn't planned. They have very interesting results. And when your results are available, it would be very interesting to compare uh, the difference uh, between developed and developing settings and, and how the recipients weather the crisis um, um, in, in the two Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so following up on, on uh, this question, um, it, it's clear um, in comparative terms that the pandemic has uh, given rise to a surge of interest in basic income, both uh, theoretically and in terms of practical policy improvisation, uh, including other, under other names and um, uh, in, in ways that have often been very experimental and sometimes very temporary. Um, that uh, lesson or that, that experience of using um, basic income 
as an emergency response does raise the question, uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of thinking it, of it in those ways, which are not typically the ways in which it was considered in the literature uh, starting in the 1990s when the uh, questions started uh, to become very popular. Uh, this also, of course, goes to the heart again of um, overcoming the dichotomy between a welfare approach and a citizen uh, approach by emphasizing uh, specific patterns of vulnerability. Let me just take one example. I don't know how relevant this was in, in your particular uh, empirical setting. The vulnerability of cultural industries to the pandemic, uh, which is something that obviously UNESCO with its uh, institutional profile is very sensitive to. Um, if you regard uh, the maintenance of cultural capacity in the face of pandemic restrictions as something like a requirement of shared citizenship, then an emergency response that allows um, employees of the cultural sector to remain available for future redeployment of culture when it's possible um, actually looks like the kind of thing that the citizenship framework would want to promote. So again, this is a difficult question. It perhaps invites you to speculate beyond uh, the parameters of the specific study. Um, but uh, even if um, there is reluctance to consider um, a universal basic income as a permanent feature of policy, is there a basis for arguing that it should be kept in the toolbox, so to speak, at least as uh, something that has shown its ability to respond to certain specific kinds of emergency situations? Sorry, that was a long-winded, complicated question. That's a great question. Dr. West, do you want to do you want to take that or do you want me to start off? Sure, but let me speculate and, and say that it's pure speculation. So I tend to think that in the context of the US, it's perhaps more feasible to frame this as a trigger response to an emergency, which is really in many ways how we've seen guaranteed income rolled out. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the first guaranteed income that we actually saw in the U.S. after the conclusion of experimentation with negative income tax, which concluded in 1982, was in fact a response to a wildfire in East Tennessee, where none other than Dolly Parton provided six months of what was an unconditional cash transfer to individuals that lost their homes in a wildfire. So that's Spurred, so that was in 2016, that spurred a number of other philanthropists to start looking at cash as a way to deal with environmental catastrophe. So we then see Give Directly doing that in Houston um, and a number of places around the U.S. that suffered natural disasters. There's a political palatability there that I think leads us to getting to a, a sort of standing policy tool. However, we have to frame this not only as environmental disaster, but also as economic disaster. And, and thinking about, you know, the pandemic really laid bare those existing uh, issues with economic inequality that we have in this country. We've got to reframe that as, as a disaster. It is um, that individuals are unable to afford homes and healthcare and transportation and to put food on the table in the same way that losing your home in a natural disaster is perceived by the public. And then I think that we can perhaps get to a place where perhaps we have a standing policy tool that looks something like, you know, if we have recession uh, as indicated by these specific metrics, that would then trigger a citizen's dividend. Um, or perhaps even more progressive, we get to a place where that's just understood and not necessarily tied to any sort of macroeconomic indicator.
So financing is critical to any conversation when it comes to basic income. So I'd be interested to discuss with you both the specific ways in which the Stockton experiment was funded and your views on the broader issues of financing uh, basic income schemes. Um, the Stockton experiment was, um, if I understood correctly, what you were telling us, uh, funded at least in part from private uh, sources. Uh, how was that designed? And in your opinion, how feasible and sustainable is that kind of, shall we say, in the broad sense, philanthropic approach to underwriting um, an unconditional income scheme? The Stockton experiment was designed to be a philanthropic endeavor, truly to pilot the idea of guaranteed income in a new economic space in a way that we hadn't done in the U.S. in decades. So it was funded through the Economic Security Project um, and kind of envisioned in collaboration uh, in, with the office of Mayor Michael Tubbs. So uh, Michael Tubbs uh, was interested in an innovative way to alleviate poverty in his city um, and, and was connected with the Economic Security Project. So essentially, they gave the money to provide the guaranteed income for 125 Stockton residents. We were brought on as researchers very early in uh, the formulation of the demonstration um, and essentially sought out private dollars. So the research, or I'm sorry, foundation dollars to support the research. So it's funded through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Evidence for Action program there. Um, and that's very important, right, to keep that separate um, just because of research ethics and a, a potential conflict of interest. Now, to your second question around the sustainability of private for, uh, sources to fund these pilots or to fund a guaranteed income that could perhaps operate nationally, I, it's not something that I support. I think it's important for piloting, especially as we have numerous research questions that need to be answered. But, uh, you know, within the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at Penn, we are now running around 14 pilots across the country. And we're seeing uh, not only uh, private dollars that are being raised, but also we're seeing commitment of CARES Act dollars, as well as those from the American Recovery Act as cities look to provide real pandemic relief to the residents. Thank you. That um, extends naturally to um, uh, questions that we've been exploring in other podcasts in this series where we've had experts discussing uh, both um, quite familiar ways of funding uh, basic income, such as uh, funding derived from natural resource uh, royalties um, and also reallocation of existing funds, for instance, by welfare rationalization. And we've also had some very interesting discussions about innovative uh, sources of funding, for instance, um, through uh, carbon taxing or uh, data-driven funding, dividends from uh, marketing socially owned data. So there's a whole space there of um, how to imagine what a sustainable uh, funding structure at scale uh, could be for this kind of scheme. So um, what what are your what are your views on this? Obviously, stepping beyond the specifics of the uh, of the Stockton uh, project, uh, what sources or what combination of sources might you imagine as really allowing sustained and sustainable basic income schemes at the right kind of scale uh, to be financed? So I have 
not necessarily landed on one that I think is the greatest idea, right? So let me let me speculate even more here in this podcast. I really think there are three potential um, options to fund this. One, of course, uh, is more progressive taxation and having you know corporations in the U.S. actually pay their fair share uh, of taxes, which could contribute to kind of to the purse uh, that we would use to fund a guaranteed income. My second would be um, a data tax, of course, that these corporations are using to further um, their own profits, really, with with no um, with no payment to the individuals uh, who who um, are providing those data. Um, and, and then the, the third that we don't talk about enough would be the decriminalization and ultimate uh, taxation of marijuana in this country, knowing that you know we we have an issue here in the country where um, black individuals are arrested and incarcerated for long periods of time um, for really small minor drug offenses associated with marijuana. Um, so this could be a way not only to fund the guaranteed income, but to realize racial justice. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, oh, so that's a very interesting proposal. Please go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I totally agree with what Dr. Dr. West was just saying. Um, and also just to take a you know a step back and, and really note that thinking about what the, th this is the struggle, right? When we think about policies that we can design things from a research perspective, but then we, we have to contend with political palatability. And I think the jury's still really out on which of those three options the public is willing to tolerate. And, and that's really another hurdle that we have to, to get over when we think about the financing piece of it. But then the second component is really, you know, Guaranteed income or universal basic income it is not a, a silver bullet or the magic solution for the level of poverty and inequality that we have in the U.S. I mean, workers are not being paid their fair share. And so part of the reason that we're having this conversation right now in our country around basic income is because people are working more, making less. And so taking kind of it even a step further beyond just financing the, those actual dollars and thinking about what are the other policies that need to be in place, not just to finance the guaranteed income, but to also make sure that households are a little bit more stable. And I think it's hard to talk about guaranteed income in isolation from the fact that workers are really not being compensated at the rate that they should be. So, you know, I don't know yet, I know what that recommendation would be per se, but it would be a mistake for me to think about it in isolation from the rest of the policy space. Did I hear correctly that you said that uh, there are other 14 pilots you are working on in the US? Roughly, yes. And how are those uh, funded? And um, in general, we are very interested in exploring more this data-driven funding and dividends from marketing socially owned data, something that, that we didn't do yet, but are planning to. Are any of those pilots funded through that kind of scheme? Um, not necessarily. So those, a, a number of different uh, ways, but the primary one, at least for the disbursements, actually came from a $5 million gift that was provided from Jack Dorsey of Twitter to Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, which is an organization that is providing really advising and technical assistance uh, as well as advocacy to mayors across the country that are interested in piloting guaranteed income in their cities. And then we, of course, at the center are evaluating those pilots. Okay, thanks. So it's linked to data, but it's still philanthropy. Correct. It's just sources uh, from there. The issue of principle is also very interesting. and I. I just like to um, push you slightly more on something you said. Um, if you see this from Europe, the traditional social democratic left in Europe is deeply suspicious 
of the idea of a universal basic income because it sees it precisely um, as making effective, effectively making poverty tolerable and letting employers off the hook for providing decent work for all at decent um, uh, wage levels, uh, which comes very close to, uh, to, to the way you formulated it yourself. Um, that in other words, the universal basic income is actually regressive in social terms, perhaps not in the strict um, uh, redistributive sense of public finance, uh, and tax burden, but at least regressive in the sense that it entrenches unjust structures rather than providing a lever to address them. Um, do you have, do, do I take it that you have some sympathy with that view, or at the very least that uh, UBI can only make sense within that broader package where things like working conditions and uh, public education and public health and so on are addressed as well, to say nothing of housing issues? I, yeah, <laughs> I have a, a, a lot of, uh, I would say, sympathy for that particular view because, you know, the, like I said prior, the reason we're even having this conversation is because workers are not being fairly compensated. And so when we think about the way that the U.S. is structured, you know, the, the market on the one hand is supposed to provide and then on the other hand, you're supposed to have the safety net step in when it fails. You know, and then in the middle, you have, you know, families and particularly women who are expected to absorb when the market fails and the safety net fails. Right. And so when we think about guaranteed income, what we're doing is we're talking about the safety net making up for the failures of the market without asking anything of the market. Right. So if we truly want to think about this in a, in a progressive frame that moves the conversation on justice, equity and dignity forward, we have to think about basic income. In, through the lens of what we are also asking of corporations and asking of the market, because we cannot just ask about the safety net, right? We can't just ask things, ask the government to do things without also asking employers to step up to the plate. And I don't think that we're there yet. I, you know, from where I sit, I'm, I'm not saying this empirically, but just some, somebody who's doing work on this issue is I don't know that we are ready yet for that conversation in the United States, um, but I do hope that we get there. In uh, closing um, this podcast, we'd like to look at um, a rather different issue, which is the issue of knowledge and data. Obviously, uh, pilot schemes or experiments such as the one you've worked on and described in detail provide very important knowledge and data about how UBI operates in real world uh, situations. Um, but of course, we have enormous gaps uh, in terms of the data we have compared to what one would need to make a full assessment of um, policies that make sense in the wide variety of different circumstances that uh, prevail across the world. And of course, UNESCO as a, uh, a specialized agency of the UN has to have a global perspective on these issues. So in your opinion, what are the key areas that researchers would need to dig deeper into, particularly perhaps in, uh, in other parts of the world where there's been less investment than there has been in uh, in North America, both the US and, and Canada. What would you see as the key knowledge gaps on issues relating to basic income at the moment? So a number of gaps exist. We know, in fact, not very much about how guaranteed income operates across the world, despite an, a number of really great experiments. There's so much to learn. I think top of mind are um, really what populations, understanding that certain populations maybe and should be prioritized as we first roll out a guaranteed income 
ultimately getting to a universal basic income. So do we prioritize women, uh, people of color, caregivers, kids that are, you know, uh, getting out of foster care, folks that are experiencing homelessness. There are key questions about subpopulations that we simply have not uh, been able to interrogate yet. The second, I think, really focuses on amount and duration, um, or I'm sorry, amount and cadence, understanding that the duration should be forever. But what is the amount of a guaranteed income that, that we need to see in order to um, promote change on, on whatever domain? And then what is the cadence? Should it be monthly? Should it be quarterly? Should it be something like the Alaska Permanent Fund where it happens yearly? Um, so those are key questions, I think, to me from the empirical side. Thank you. Would you like to come in also on, on that question of knowledge gaps? Yeah, so the only thing I'd really add to that is is to just say that you know, regardless of your context, you know, whatever country you happen to be in or market you have to be you happen to be in, we have to also ask questions around gender and around care work. So when we think about the unpaid labor of women, that really holds up societies all over the world. Um, and thinking about how a basic income does and does not supplement that is going to be a, a really key and outstanding question, um, regardless of context. And so thinking about the ways in which women do and do not have power in the market, the ways in which women do and do not have power within the home, um, and are they compensated for that labor? And, and so thinking about that you know, on a broader, kind of a more conceptual lens is going to be really key to figuring out how well we can even design these programs based on context. Thank you. Um, that leads to a, a related question. Some of the things we, we find fascinating as social scientists are genuinely fascinating and uh, obviously require more research. But maybe not everything in, in the real world uh, is at the same level of political policy significance. So if, if there were a couple of areas where getting the right messages to policymakers in order to support uh, more appropriate, more equitable, more inclusive, more citizenship-oriented, more gender-sensitive uh, schemes of um, uh, welfare provision, including but not limited to uh, basic income, what, what would they be? What, what are the things that you really think policymakers are not listening to, perhaps because the data isn't comprehensive enough, and that could then point to policy-level priorities in terms of what needs to be researched? Or are they simply the same ones? <laughs> I, I mean, I'll answer first in terms of narrative frame, and then I think Dr. West is best suited to talk more about the specific domains. I think the biggest limitation right now is that things happen in silos. And so policymakers are driven by data, as they should be, um, but they forget that data exists within culture and exists within the public. And so we really have a gap um, around understanding the human experience in the policymaking process. And so if I were to bring one thing to the table to policymakers, it would be the fact that they have to learn to include um, human experience and voice, not just in research, but in data. And that's really something when we look throughout policy history that we see over and over and over again, is we make really expensive mistakes because we design things solely based on empiricism, right, um, which is important, but we forget to ask real human beings whether or not that program would even function well in their community. And I think we're really just beginning um, to understand how we infuse those two things together in the research space. 
I agree with that. I think I'll also add, you know, unfortunately, what moves policymakers in this country is the, the power of the dollar, right? So I think moving forward with these experiments, we have to demonstrate some return on investment, whether that be in, in the form of better child health outcomes, healthcare cost savings, um, residential stability, worker productivity. Those are the sorts paired with um, some data around narrative. I think those are the ways that we're gonna move policy. And I think we're starting to do that with the Stockton experiment specifically, and that we're able to demonstrate, you know, perhaps not large labor market effects, but at least uh, the behavior of individuals shifts as uh, their income is more steady. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Yulia, would you have any uh, closing comments on this or perhaps on other issues that we discussed earlier? No, except saying that uh, this has been a very complementary discussion to everything we had uh, before on, in other podcasts with other experts. So I encourage everyone to listen to those as well. I do too. Uh, it's a great podcast series. And uh, Dr. Castro Baker, Dr. West, thank you very much for participating in a very lively and very informative uh, discussion on how one particular experiment can lead us to some quite broad uh, conclusions about the feasibility and desirability of um, uh, guaranteed income, minimum income schemes. Thank you again, and uh, goodbye to everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having us.